Today we're starting, obviously, with the Matthew Gospel. If you were fortunate enough to be here last week, Michael Dietzel gave us a fantastic introduction to our New Testament survey. And you heard Michael tell us that the New Testament is a consistent, cohesive continuation of the Old Testament. And so we're looking at Matthew as just the next chapter in God's story of his plan to redeem mankind from sin, all for his glory, just like we said all the way back when we began our Old Testament survey in Genesis. And so today we're going to take a deeper dive into the book of Matthew so we can appreciate the unique contribution that Matthew has given us in these scriptures. So let's take a moment, go to the Lord in prayer, ask him to bless our time here. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for the opportunity to come together with other believers and pick up your word, Lord. Help us to understand what it was you inspired Matthew to write. Help us to understand Jesus' teachings more clearly so that we can worship you more fully. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. All right, let's, like we usually do, talk about the who, the where, the when, and then most importantly, the why. We all know by now, I'm sure, that Matthew was a tax collector, which made him less than loved by his Jewish peers. Tax collectors at the time were considered to be apostate sinners. They were shunned by most of the Jewish people, and Matthew was no different. So by human standards, we wouldn't really expect this guy Matthew to have been chosen as an apostle, much less a biographer of Jesus Christ's life. But nevertheless, Jesus chose Matthew to be a disciple and then an apostle. And Matthew's response was immediate. He followed Jesus immediately in obedience. Now, it's interesting. I didn't realize this, but the authors of the Gospels never mention themselves by name. And I've heard critics say, well, we don't really know if those guys wrote those books, but I want to cover that for a minute. The earliest Greek manuscripts contained the title, The Gospel According to Matthew. So that should be a cue as to who wrote this. Several of the early church fathers, the guys that recorded history in the early church closest to when the apostles lived, such as Justin Martyr, Papias, Irenaeus, and Origen, all regarded Matthew as the author. And here's something interesting we see in Matthew's writing that was kind of distinctive that lets us know this was a secular money guy, a tax guy. Matthew included and used monetary terms that kind of reflect his background. He used um, three words for money that nowhere else in Scripture you find. And another example, this is the only gospel, Matthew's gospel, to record the account of Jesus' payment of the temple tax. It's kind of funny. A, a tax guy would, would notice something like that and note it. So there are a lot of details along the lines of these we don't have time to cover all of them, but we have a strong case that the tax collector turned apostle known as Matthew did, in fact, write this book. Now, as far as the where and the when, we're not given a lot in the way of chronological or geographical information, so we can't really be dogmatic in stating where he wrote this. It's kind of assumed that he wrote in Judea, the area around Jerusalem. Some people say farther up north in Syria and Antioch, <clears throat> but we have to admit we really don't know where Matthew wrote this. The time of the writing is even a little more controversial. A lot of biblical scholars say it was written by Matthew sometime after the destruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, A.D. 70 or after. However, uh, the second century church father, Irenaeus, who I mentioned earlier, dated Matthew in the early 60s A.D. 
And it was, in fact, the unanimous belief of the church from the second century on that Matthew's gospel was indeed written before the Roman persecution came in the mid-60s after Christ's ascension. So again, we can't be sure, but somewhere probably it's plausible to say between 50 and 70 AD. Not that it matters that much, but uh, some people would disagree with that. So let's talk about the why. What's the purpose that Matthew wrote with? Like Michael said last week, if you look both at the content and the organization of all the books of the New Testament, you'll see that each one reflects a different purpose behind its writing. And these books were not aimless. And we don't have unnecessarily repetitious books in the canon of the New Testament. That's something we really want to emphasize in this New Testament survey. The authors developed certain themes and certain goals, and that certainly is the case with Matthew, and I hope to bring that out this morning. Matthew wrote to demonstrate that Jesus of Nazareth was the long-awaited Davidic Messiah. When I say Davidic Messiah, it means the Messiah that came through the line of David. You'll see that. The King of Israel... Oh, thank you. My stand is about to fall and my computer will crash on the floor. Thank you, J.D. Matthew wrote to demonstrate that Jesus was the Davidic Messiah, the King of Israel, who fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies. And he puts a lot of emphasis, Matthew does, on Jesus' royalty and on his relationship to the kingdom of heaven, which is another important theme we'll talk about. If you go to Matthew 1, verse 1, Those of you that have your Bibles, you'll see in the opening verse that Matthew clearly points out to the reader who Jesus was. It says this, Matthew 1.1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He wants to demonstrate again that Christ is the rightful heir to the promises of both the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants. And we covered this in our Old Testament survey, but I'll mention them again just as a refresher. God promised Abraham... That from his loins would come a great nation, and that through Abraham shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The Davidic covenant, once again, God promised the blessings of an eternal house, an eternal throne, and an eternal kingdom. And since the promise of an eternal kingdom was a major emphasis in Jesus' teachings, it also was an emphasis for Matthew. We'll talk more about that. You'll remember when Mary was pregnant before she married Joseph... The angel Gabriel came to her and told her that her child, Jesus, would be the recipient of these promises that God made to Abraham and to David. And Matthew demonstrates, once again, how all this is fulfilled in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So throughout the book, he establishes the fact that only Jesus of Nazareth could match the qualifications to be this long-awaited Messiah, this Davidic king, the king of Israel, and that is primarily why he wrote this gospel. And apparently we can tell that Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience because he frequently quotes or alludes to the Old Testament. And as we'll see, he emphasized the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy as one of his proofs for establishing who Jesus was. It wasn't a coincidence that Matthew did this, quoting or citing or alluding to the Old Testament. He specifically planned this Hopefully we'll be able to see that today because his audience, the Jewish people, knew the Old Testament scriptures very well. So he was speaking to them saying, look at this. All right, again, as we heard from Michael last week, the books of the Bible are not unnecessarily duplicated. Everyone 
Every one of them has a, a revealed truth and a perspective that you don't see in other books of the Bible. So as we go through this New Testament survey over the next few months, we always want to try to ask this question. What is it that's found in this book, today Matthew, that's not found or given as a perspective in other books of the New Testament? So I'll really quickly just rip through and mention some things that are unique to Matthew that you don't find in any other gospel or any other book. For example, the explanation of Mary's pregnancy to Joseph by an angel in a dream, the journey of the Magi, those wise men who came to Palestine, that's only captured in Matthew, the flight to Egypt by Joseph and Mary and the infant Jesus to escape Herod's decree that all the little uh, Hebrew boy babies around Bethlehem would be killed. And then he also records the killing of those youth only in Matthew. Uh, chapter 27, only Matthew records the suicidal death of Judas where he hung himself. We only know that from Matthew. Only Matthew reports the dream that Pilate's wife had concerning Jesus' innocence. We also have a couple of just, I, I don't know how to describe these astounding accounts. I'll talk about these more. In the end of the, the, the Gospel of Matthew, the resurrection of the bodies at the time of Christ's death and resurrection. Matthew only talks about that. And then as a money guy, this is interesting. Again, he records something that nobody else recorded in, in any other gospel. There was a conspiracy of the Jewish church leaders to bribe to give money to the Roman guards to spread the rumor that Christ's body was stolen by the disciples. These are all things that we only learn in Matthew. And there are certain parables that only Matthew uh, shared that are not found in Mark, Luke, or John. If you look at chapter 13, Matthew really hones in on the parables of the kingdom of heaven. And we have the parable of the wheat and the tares, the treasure hidden in the earth, the merchant and the pearl, and the net and the fish only found in Matthew. And we also have the parables of the unmerciful servant, the vineyard workers, the two sons, the marriage feast of the, feast of the king's son, the wise and foolish virgins, the talents, and the sheep and the goats. All of these are unique and found only in Matthew. And he also reports three miracles, by the way, that nobody else reported on. Healing of the two blind men, the deliverance of the mute, demon-possessed man in chapter 9, and interestingly, again, a money guy, is the only one that noted the coin that Peter found in the fish's mouth. I think that's interesting. And guess where the only two mentions in all four Gospels are found of the church? Only in Matthew, in chapter 16 and 18, he uses the word, the Greek word, ecclesia, from where we get the word ecclesiology, which is the study of the church. But it's kind of surprising no other gospel writer talked about the church, even though we, we look at the New Testament as basically a, uh, a Christian church document. Only Matthew used the word church or ecclesia, and he did it twice. Okay, so now that we have covered some um, background information, some biographical information, and mentioned a few of the distinctives that only Matthew wrote about. Uh, let's look at an outline, a basic outline, that kind of breaks down the basic subdivisions of what Matthew focused on. And we'll touch on all of these a little bit, but we'll really try to focus our attention on just a few of them due to time constraints. You can see that the first four chapters, Matthew gives the birth narrative and Jesus' preparation for ministry. And then chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, we're all familiar with that. Chapters 8 through 10, where Jesus demonstrates his authority. Chapters 11 through 12, Jesus faces opposition. And then the climax of his ministry in Galilee, chapters 13 through 18. 
Then he spends a lot of time, obviously, on Jesus' ministry as it moves into Judea in Jerusalem. And then finally, the last three chapters, the Passion and the Resurrection. So that's a basic outline. Like I said, a key focus for Matthew was to present Jesus as the king of Israel in exact fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And like I said, he puts a great emphasis on Jesus' royalty and upon his relationship to the kingdom. Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom of heaven, and so Matthew honed in on that. And if you remember, the apostle Paul referred to Jesus as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And uh, John in Revelation 19 also reiterated that title, king of king, Lord of lords, and so does Matthew emphasize Jesus as king. So how does he do this? Well, it's very interesting. Let me ask you a question here. If I were to ask you, how would you prove to me, how many forms of positive identification could you give me to tell me that you are who you say you are? How many forms of ID could you come up with? I would imagine most of us have a driver's license. Most of us would have, I don't know, a social security card, maybe a utility bill with our address and name on it, maybe a credit card. I don't know if we could consider that an official ID. Um, some people have a passport. I would, I would wager a bet that most of us only have two or three real valid forms of ID. And we would say, that's how I prove who I am. But what would you say to someone who could produce over 20 forms of positive ID? Would you say, it's crazy, I don't think you, who, you are who you say you are? That's what I want to show to you here, because in this gospel, and that's what Matthew wants to do, he gives 20, at least 20 forms of ID for, J, for Jesus Christ, showing that he indeed was the Davidic Messiah who fulfilled the Old Testament. And Matthew was the most explicit of the gospel writers in alerting his audience that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. And you'll see this phrase in Matthew 10 times, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet, or a similar phrase, 10 times. And with the exception of one of them, they're only found in Matthew. So let's take a quick look here at the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled according to Matthew. And we can see here that Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was. And for the sake of time, I won't quote each of these prophecies. It would take far too long. But you can see here there are 20 of them. And I added one additional New Testament prophecy as I was reading it. Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection as he was talking to his disciples. And then, boom, in chapter 27, guess what? It comes true. So it's not an Old Testament prophecy, but Jesus, validating that he indeed could prophesy, said, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised again. And here it came true. So um, we also have, well, you can just see through these, uh, he'd be born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, came out of Egypt, performs miracles of healing, rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. David called him Lord. He's crucified and resurrected. And I've got two more IDs that I thought were worth showing. Um, Neither one is in the form of fulfilled prophecy, but they both serve to show Matthew's purpose in identifying that Jesus indeed was the Christ. Matthew 3, verse 17, God himself speaks and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And I don't know about you, but to me, it's kind of hard to top being ID'd by the creator. I think that trumps having a passport. Uh, Matthew 8, 31, the demons recognized Jesus and begged him for mercy from his authority. So there's identification from the demonic world. They knew exactly who Jesus was. So there you go, 
You and I might be able to come up with two or three forms of ID and we think that's good. It's crazy to think that Jesus wasn't who he says he was because he matched these 20 plus IDs. I want to mention this. Peter Stoner was a professor of mathematics and he calculated the probability of just eight messianic prophecies being fulfilled in the life of one person. And he estimated, he did his calculations very conservatively. The probability that one person would fulfill even eight messianic prophecies in one lifetime is one in 10 to the 17th, which is one in 100 quadrillion. That's one followed by 17 zeros. And Bible scholars tell us there's actually 300 plus messianic prophecies talking about Jesus in the Old Testament. Matthew covers at least 20 of them here. Isn't that profound? That is amazing. I think that really drives the point home. Matthew did a great job of this. And again, he clearly wrote his gospel on the foundation of the Hebrew scriptures, or what we know as the Old Testament. By the way, he also includes... I counted, I could be wrong, no less than 23 times where Jesus himself directly quotes the Old Testament scripture. And if you'll remember when Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, those first three, uh, Satan is tempting Christ, and what does he say to him each time? He quotes directly from Deuteronomy. It is written, boom, Deuteronomy. Boom, boom, and Satan left. So Matthew wanted to highlight that. Now, unfortunately, this is just a survey We don't have time to cover everything in in all seven sections of the outline, so I have to leave a lot of stuff on the table. It's it's hard, Uh, but we'll see if we can draw out more examples of Matthew's purpose here. And we'll start with Matthew's birth narrative and and Jesus' preparation for ministry detailed in chapters 1 through 4. So if you've got your Bibles, let's go to Matthew 1-1 again. This opening verse of the Bible Like I said, it clearly points out one of Matthew's main purposes in writing. It says this, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Again, reiterate this, Matthew placed a special emphasis on Jesus' Davidic origin by repeating David's name no less than five times in the first 17 verses of this genealogy. And throughout his gospel, he uses the royal messianic title, Son of David, no less than nine times. Why does he do this? Again, remember the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 and Psalms 2, Psalm 89. God had promised David that he'd raise up from David's line a descendant who would reign on God's throne forever. Jesus would be the king sitting on the throne of God forever. And like we saw the prophets, Isaiah, if I were to flip back to the prophecies, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, They all promised that this coming Messiah would be the hope of Israel. So Matthew identified Jesus as the fulfillment of these promises when he called Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Now, to better understand Matthew's genealogy, we need to compare with Luke's genealogy, which traces the line of Christ all the way back to Adam. So if you will, move to the the book of Luke Go to chapter 3. Let's go to verse 23. Luke chapter 3, verse 23. I think this will help you see what Matthew is doing in his genealogy. Luke chapter 3, verse 23. You see that Luke traces the genealogy of Jesus backwards 
through his legal adoptive father, Joseph. And then he goes back to Joseph's father, Heli. And then he goes backwards all the way to the first man God created, Adam. Now, move back to Matthew chapter 1. And you'll see that Matthew starts with Abraham. Again, he's writing to a Jewish audience. Father Abraham, good place to start. And he traces Abraham forward through each son all the way down to Jesus. Okay? If you look here up on the, on the slide, if you follow the purple line, hopefully you can see that, you'll see that Luke traces the genealogy of Jesus, again, backwards through, I'm sorry, Matthew, following the purple line, gives the royal line of David through his son Solomon. And then all through the kings of Judah, you follow that line, Matthew's genealogy through Solomon. I'm sorry, I said purple, it's the blue line. It's, it reads like Second uh, Chronicles, going through the guys that, that held the, the crown. But if you follow the other line, the purple line, you'll see that Luke chose to trace the Davidic line through a non-ruling son, Nathan, another son of David. Now, some people see contradictions in these two lists, but if you look closely, there's actually harmony, which we should expect from the Word of God, right? So here's the deal. Why am I showing this to you? Matthew is giving us the physical ancestry of Joseph, and Luke is recording the physical ancestry of Mary. And both lists are absolutely necessary to demonstrate that only Jesus could be the rightful Messiah and King. And let me explain why that is. Through the prophet Jeremiah, you can see in the lower right corner, Jeremiah um, said that King Jehoiakim, also known as Jeconiah, who was one of the royal descendants of David, you can see in that blue line. And he was an extremely wicked man, and through the prophet, God said that he would be cursed never to have an offspring sitting on the throne of David, ruling again in Judah. So, this poses a very serious dilemma. How could Israel have a descendant of King David as king if God had cursed the royal line that came after Jehoiakim. The only way this dilemma could be solved is if you had a virgin conception. And so, again, Mary was a physical descendant with the genetics to David, she has, uh, through his son Nathan, and Luke showed us how Jesus gained the physical rights to the throne of David. I'm sorry, let me say that again. Mary was a physical descendant through his son Nathan. Luke shows us how Jesus gained his physical rights to the throne of David through Mary. So Matthew shows us that Jesus was given the legal right to be Joseph's firstborn son through adoption. And Jesus received both the legal and royal rights to the throne of David without being subject to the curse. And I find that pretty profound. Isn't that amazing? Here's something else profound that struck me the last time I read through Matthew. You remember I said that only Matthew recorded the Magi, the wise men who came uh, to Palestine to worship the baby Jesus. An amazing account. Highly educated, esteemed men, when they saw the baby, the infant, what was their response? They worshipped him, a baby. In contrast, Matthew talked about King Herod hating Jesus. And they had to leave and go to Egypt and come back, and in the meantime, all the babies were killed. And this points out, Matthew shows us the contrast 
between the way the world received Jesus and Herod and people wanted him dead from the moment he was a baby. And this continued into his earthly ministry. Obviously, the world hated him, rejected him. But some, like the Magi, received him with joy. And that was an interesting thing Matthew pointed out. And I think he did this to show us that this was no ordinary baby that came into the world, that they wanted him dead from the moment he took his first breath. All right, let's move on. Let's talk a little bit about Jesus' teachings in Matthew. Matthew was very eager to explain that Jesus' teaching did not depart from Old Testament law, but fulfilled it according to God's preordained plan. And we all know um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, we read in Christ's own words that he came to fulfill the Old Testament, not to destroy it, as many people were charging him with. So after presenting Jesus as the Davidic king, We move to chapters 5 through 7, where Matthew records Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. We're going to talk about this a little bit because it describes how the citizens of the kingdom of God were to live. Sermon on the Mount is, by the way, very applicable and relevant still today, just as it was in Christ's day. To enter the spiritual kingdom today and the eternal kingdom of the future Jesus repeatedly taught his disciples to avoid the hypocrisy demonstrated by the teachers of the law, where they would pray and fast and do all these things publicly to gain admiration of men. He said, no, we do these things in order that God would recognize them, to worship him from the heart. So after showing us how the citizens of the kingdom were to live in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus then moved to the parables where he showed what the kingdom would look like, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus taught about the kingdom of heaven using images from everyday life, like a mustard seed or leaven or things like this or weeds, in short parables that illustrated the difference between believers and non-believers, what that kingdom would be like. Okay, so now, since we talked about the kingdom, and this is a major emphasis of Jesus' teachings in Matthew, let's turn our attention to that theme real quick. The kingdom of heaven was a subject that Matthew presented Jesus teaching on more than any other subject. In fact, the message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, resonates throughout the gospel of Matthew. And you'll find the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, 32 times in Matthew's gospel. And the kingdom of God, he uses this phrase an additional five times. Other gospel writers used the phrase, kingdom of God. They didn't use the kingdom of heaven. And people are like, well, what do they mean? What's the difference? I think uh, most of the commentators that I read said, we think that he used them interchangeably. Not a, not, no difference, which, which you, we should expect. Now, I want to give you a little background for why all of this is so important. This king, this kingdom. If you go back a couple thousand years to when Abraham uh, was Father Abraham, God had told him that he would be their king, the king of Abraham, the king of his descendants. And so that was the expectation. And that's why when the the people, the Israelites, decided they wanted an earthly human king, um, God was not really excited about that idea, neither was the prophet Samuel. And unfortunately, as you saw that God granted them, he let them have their kings, we saw in our Old Testament survey what happened as each of those kings became apostate, leading the people into harlotry like Michael's been teaching us through Hosea. The nation of Israel was a whore. They went after pagan gods. And as a result, all through the centuries leading up to Christ, uh, the Mosaic Covenant came to bear on them. They were punished and they were oppressed and subjected to many kingdoms like the Babylonians, 
uh, like the Persians, like Alexander the Great and the Greeks, and then in Jesus' time, the Romans. So um, this is the backdrop, the historical backdrop. When Jesus came to reinstate God as the king of Israel in the hearts and mind of the Hebrew people. And this is why in Matthew 6.33 he said, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And this is interesting. Um, At times, Jesus seemed to indicate that he'd brought the kingdom of God into the present, which is why his Sermon on the Mount gave them and us instructions on what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. But at other times... His teachings seem to indicate a future unfulfilled aspect of this kingdom. And if you look in chapters 24 and 25, he's preaching on the Olivet Discourse in which he goes into what things will be like in the last days and what that kingdom will be like when it is complete. And he didn't claim that the kingdom of God had fully come during his earthly work. That would come in the future In the meantime, he taught his disciples and he taught us to pray, your kingdom come in the Lord's prayer. So he was teaching us, he was teaching them about the coming aspect of the kingdom that hadn't fully arrived. And Matthew makes it clear that the kingdom of God is both present and future. It's been inaugurated, but not fully consummated. So that's why we say there's an already but not yet aspect to the kingdom of God. And Jesus was able to teach and preach with authority about the kingdom of God because he was the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man. And it was critically important to Matthew that his readers hear this message so that they'd have the opportunity to repent from their sin. That's another focus we don't have a lot of time to go into, but Matthew did have a heart for the church, and he wanted to see people saved. Jesus is the Messiah, not just so that we can intellectually assent to the fact, okay, he's the Messiah, he fulfilled the prophecies, So what? Repent from your sin and believe. And Matthew talked about that a lot and emphasized that. He wanted people to know the assurance of salvation in the kingdom. Matthew also confirmed that Jesus was who he said he was through his miracles, demonstrating that he has authority not over just the spiritual world but the physical world. When Jesus said something, they both listened to him. The demonic world, the physical world, the laws of nature stood at attention when Jesus commanded them, like when he wanted to walk on water or feed 5,000 or raise the dead, things like this. Finally, Matthew confirmed who Jesus was through the story of his death and resurrection. We'll move to the last three chapters as we come to a close here. Matthew confirms once again who Jesus is through his death and resurrection. Just like the other gospel writers... Matthew told the story of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection without a lot of extensive interpretation or commentary. And he begins with Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he follows him through the last few hours of his life, in which he was flogged, mocked, spit upon, blasphemed, and crucified alongside two criminals. And all this is covered, like I said, in the last three chapters. What Matthew made certain was that God acted supernaturally to vindicate Jesus and certify once again his true identity as the Messiah, the King. And if you remember, the sign over the cross that read, the King of the Jews was put there to mock him. But it was validated after what I I could only describe as apocalyptic events. 
If you recall, when Jesus gave up his spirit and died, the curtain is torn in two, the massive curtain in the temple from top to bottom. The other gospel writers uh, note this, but check this out. I, I wanted to read this to you in chapter 27, if you'll go there. Chapter 27, verses 51 through 54. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. This is after Jesus had just died from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this is the Son of God. And I have to admit, when I read over this a few months ago, I didn't know I was going to be teaching on Matthew. I don't know, for some strange reason, I was reading through this. And having gone to church all my life, been in the book of Matthew, when I read this account, I was literally stunned. Are you kidding me? People rose from the dead from the tombs when Jesus died? And I had the same exact response that the centurion did. I, it's almost like I said to myself, Surely this was the Son of God. And I think that's the, the exact response Matthew meant to elicit from us. And again, this is only captured in Matthew. Uh, absolutely amazing. He then closes with one more fascinating account, again, that only he reported on. At the end of chapter 27, we read this in verses 62 through 66. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate, and they said, Sir, we remember how that imposture said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He's risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. And when he said a guard of soldiers, he didn't mean one guy. It meant a, a, a bevy of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. And you can imagine, think about how pivotal this moment was in history. Jesus of Nazareth, who everybody in the world pretty much understands and knows who he was a little bit, the most pivotal mo moment in history, do you think that they would let these guards fall asleep? Do you think they just sent one or two? They were serious about this. Don't let this happen because that fraud where he was preaching and teaching is going to be made worse if he's not in the tomb, so make sure. Okay, so in the final chapter, chapter 28, Matthew spends relatively little time, just 10 verses going through the resurrection or the, the reunion between Mary and Mary Magdalene and the disciples with Jesus after his resurrection. And then he gets to finishing his report on the guards this is fascinating. He talks about how after the stone had been rolled away in the earthquake and Jesus had walked out of the tomb alive, and here are all these soldiers that are supposed to not be letting anything like this happen. Matthew picks up and he talks about everything that happened. Verse 11 of chapter 28. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they'd assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. 
And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. And what's interesting to me is if you walk up on the hill at University of Kansas or any other secular university where they're teaching religious studies, I'm doing that in air quotes, they may propagate this very thing. They'll say, well, we don't really know if Jesus was dead. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But we think it may be likely or plausible or probable that his disciples may have stolen his body. And that's why there's an empty tomb. And all the Christians think he was resurrected. Matthew saw in advance that this would be an argument. So it's almost like when you read that this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This story has been spread among the Gentiles to this day. I think Matthew intuitively knew there would be skeptical arguments against Christ's deity and against his resurrection. And so he reported, I think Matthew may have had some inside scoop into what happened behind closed doors. So he's exposing this conspiracy, this deceit. And he left, once again, no doubt that Jesus was indeed the risen Messiah. So looking back, it's, it's, it's incredible that despite all of this evidence that Matthew has presented, that he was and he still is the king, the promised son of David, Christ, again, he encountered bitter opposition and hatred, and he still does today. But what's interesting is the people, we talk about the people of the nation of Israel, they were looking for a political king, someone that would overthrow the oppressive Roman government. They wanted what Francis Schaeffer used to say is what we want. Two values that everybody holds dearly in America. Personal peace, meaning I don't want to be bothered by the things, even my neighbor across the street. I just want to have personal peace. And I want to have things, material wealth, personal peace and prosperity. That's what they wanted, and that's why they wanted a physical king. They weren't looking for someone like Jesus who would talk about repentance and salvation and talk about an eternal kingdom. That didn't benefit them right now. And I got to tell you, it just makes me think about today, as I'm pondering what Matthew is teaching how many of us, even in the church, I have to say this, we're concerned about a, a physical king that will give us personal peace and um, prosperity. You know, Democrat, Republican. How could you vote for him if you're a Christian? How could you vote for her if you're a Christian? We have to remember what Matthew is saying here. Okay? Um, we should remember who our king is and what the end game really is for a lost world that doesn't know him, which takes us to where Matthew closes his gospel, the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus is quoted here. He's saying to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that's where Matthew leaves it, so that's where we'll leave it. This, this is a good place to end our review of Matthew.